0: This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to this Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. My name is Michael Wills. I'm the executive vice president here at NDR. Uh, Today we'll be talking with Dr. Aaron Friedberg to discuss his new book, Getting China Wrong, which was published in June of 2022 by Polity Press. Aaron is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University, where he's taught since 1987. From 2003 to 2005, um, he served as the deputy assistant for national security affairs in the office of the vice president. In addition to his role at Princeton, he's also a member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and a counselor to the National Bureau of Asian Research. So let me just begin by framing things a little bit, having read um, most of your book, Aaron. After you know three decades or more of engagement, um, we're at a point in history now where China has emerged stronger, more prosperous than at any time we've seen in its modern history. And yet instead of gradually liberalizing economically and politically, which was the gamble that Western policymakers and scholars had had made and anticipated would happen. Instead, China has become much more repressive, increasingly assertive, and some would argue even aggressive abroad uh, and seemingly intent on reshaping the liberal international order. And so the title of your book, I think, is a very apt question, you know, what, what went wrong? Why did this vision that we had um, uh, not come to pass? And so, you know, I'm curious if we can start by, you know, having you describe the, the key argument. And I'd like to ask you sort of three specific questions. If we begin with this premise of, you know, getting China wrong, who exactly got China wrong is the first question. Secondly, what was the mistake that they made? And thirdly, and I think this is the one that we're grappling with, at least from a policy perspective, what are the consequences of that mistake for us today?
0: Michael, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on the podcast. It's it's a privilege and it's a pleasure to be with you. I think the, uh, the basic argument of the book is really advanced in in three parts, and the book has really three sections. And the first addresses this question of the origins of the vision that you sketched out earlier. Uh, And it has to do with the beliefs of American, but also wider Western policymakers about what it was that they were going to accomplish at the end of the Cold War by expanding and building on engagement with China and above all economic engagement, although it took many other forms. And the answer to that, I think, is that for a variety of reasons, U.S. and other Western policymakers believed that engagement would ultimately help to transform China uh, in three respects. First, it would cause uh, China's leaders to believe or to come to believe that they had an interest in upholding and supporting the existing international order into which the United States was trying to welcome them. So they would become status quo powers as political scientists might say, or responsible stakeholders in the existing international system. So that was number one. Number two, there was a belief that particularly the process of economic integration and drawing China into what was becoming in the early 90s a truly global economy would encourage tendencies that were believed already to be at work in China towards economic liberalization. That is, China Uh, engaged with the world economically as its companies were exposed to competition, uh, the forces leading towards greater and greater reliance on the market as the mechanism for determining the allocation of scarce resources would be uh, irresistible in the end. And the state would draw back, it wouldn't quite wither away, but China's economy would be transformed over time into one that more closely resembled those of the industrial democracies, basically market driven. And then the third expectation was that eventually, and it wasn't clear exactly when this was going to happen, uh, China's political system would also be transformed. And that in time, the same forces uh, engagement, particularly economic growth, would uh, encourage a movement towards political liberalization. And eventually China would move towards something that more closely resembled a democracy. Again, not quite clear what that would look like exactly, but the general expectation, the direction was clear. And that was the basis, those expectations were the basis on which the strategy of engagement uh, was based. So that's number one. Number two is, and of course, I think this has become clearer and clearer in the last decade, None of those expectations have been met, and you touched on this in your in your opening remarks. Um, China is not a status quo power. It's pretty clearly a revisionist power now. It wants to change important aspects of the existing international system, both in its own neighborhood and, and globally. Uh, it has not moved progressively towards a true market-based economy. To the contrary, uh, it is now arguably more reliant in some ways on these mercantilist interventionist economic policies than it was, say, 20 years ago when it joined the World Trade Organization. And it certainly has not become more democratic. And again, to the contrary, it's more repressive now, uh, arguably, than at any time in its in its recent history. So then the question is, what went wrong? Uh, and you ask, who exactly got wrong, China wrong? Well, I think the people who had these beliefs, and it was a very large group, uh, Got things wrong, and in particular, what they underestimated and the the kind of core of all the problems that emerged later, uh, they underestimated the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the party. I believe was determined right from the start to take the benefits from engagement, but at the same time to preclude the kinds of changes that Westerners thought would follow inevitably in its in its train. So the second part of the book uh goes into some detail in describing the various aspects of ccp strategy so the core mistake was misunderstanding and underestimating the chinese communist party Uh, and then i try to describe the different elements of the strategy that they pursued and really talk about three uh the domestic political policies put in place to make sure that the ccp didn't lose its grip The economic policies uh, that have been implemented and adapted over time, uh, designed to promote growth, get the benefits from engagement, use market forces to a degree, but always keep them under the control of the the party state. And then the third uh, part of their strategy is the more outward directed. And there I argue that um, China's leaders have had I think, pretty constant objectives. They've wanted to reassert China's place as the preponderant power in its own neighborhood. uh, And ultimately, I think, as uh, one of, if not the dominant powers in the international system. So to put it bluntly, I think they want to catch up with and if they can overtake the United States as the leading global power. Uh, I think those objectives go all the way back to, to Mao, And they've been uh, consistent, what's changed is the assertiveness or aggressiveness with which China's leaders have pursued uh, pursued those goals. And that change is a result, in my view, of their changing assessment of the, the balance of power, if you like, or China's relative power in the world. And as they become more bullish about their own prospects, they've begun to behave more assertively and even more aggressively. And so that shift, as many people have pointed out now, I think, becomes evident in the wake of the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, and it certainly intensified with Xi Jinping's rise to power in 2012, 2013. So that's the, the middle part of the book talks about the strategy that China developed to counter our strategy of engagement, because that's really what this was, I think, a, a contest between these opposing actors, each with its own objectives, which were not ultimately not compatible. And if you look at it from where we stand now, uh, given what our expectations were, you have to say that our strategy has failed. And given what their goals appear to have been, at least for the moment, China's strategy was superior. So that leads then to the final question of what is what is to be done. And um, I, I don't go on at great length about this, but touch on what I think are some of the central themes of a of a new strategy. And the essence of all of this or the starting point of all of this is recognize that whereas in the past we were trying to change china in various ways now we have to accept that we don't have the power to do that certainly not by being accommodating and we have to deal with china as it is and we have to defend our interests uh, in light of the way in which china has evolved so that's a kind of a brief overview Uh,
1: thanks let me let me ask you to maybe rewind on that come back to the sort of consequences and and look forward a little bit, you know, what I see in the book, uh, and, and what I'd like you to unpack a little bit is, was the strategy of engagement naive from the outset? Or was it the right strategy at the time? And so I'm thinking back to the historical record of, you know, Nixon and Kissinger, figuring out ways to, to engage with China in the context of, of this. And then the, the rise of Deng Xiaoping, the sort of the end of the chaos of the Mao era. Um, were we naive at that point in, in sort of beginning an engagement strategy? Or was that actually a smart gamble to make at the time? And, the, you know, the getting peace, the, 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 getting China wrong was something that that was um, our misinterpretation of the trends that we were seeing in China or sort of expecting progress that wasn't coming to fruition. And so maybe if you could unpack that a little bit and and sort of help us understand, was it flawed from the outset or were there sort of signposts along the way that that we could have paid more attention to um, and kind of reached this realization that China was much more of a challenge to be managed than we had had first understood if we rewound, you know, 20 or 30 years.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, Nixon and Kissinger, so let me start there, because in the book, I I talk about what I describe as uh, engagement 1.0 and engagement 2.0, not not very imaginative titles, but uh, and basically I think from the beginning of the, the Nixon Kissinger opening, so called, to China, so in the late 60s, early 70s, down to 1989, uh, Tiananmen, and then all the events that followed very quickly after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, down to the late 1980s, the U.S. strategy for engaging with China, or the purpose of engaging with China, was, I would say, almost entirely strategic. And the objective was to build up China's power and to help China become a more effective counterweight to what was perceived at that time to be growing Soviet power and increasing Soviet aggressiveness. And Nixon and Kissinger, I think, were pretty explicitly uninterested in what was going on inside China. Uh, Nixon famously said, I think, in his first meeting with Mao in private, didn't say this in public, basically, we don't care what you do uh, to your own people. What we care about is how you behave towards us and how you behave in the outside world. So that's sort of a classic realist position. And I think that strategy was uh, was a sensible one under the circumstances at the time. Um, It did contribute, I think, to the end of the Cold War and overburdening the Soviets with the military competition and the requirement to put a lot of forces on the border with with China and so on. But then after 1989, or really after 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the previous rationale for engaging with China uh, really no longer applied. If we didn't have this big opponent out there that we needed help with, why exactly were we doing things that built up China's power? And in addition, whereas Nixon and Kissinger could say, well, we don't really care about your internal uh, developments, after Tiananmen, it was very difficult to turn away from that, to ignore it. And also after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the idea that there could be liberalizing change in communist societies was very much on people's minds. So it's in that context that this second variant of engagement emerges. And what I said a minute ago was uh, sort of summing up the arguments for engagement as they were framed in the early 1990s. So you asked whether it was naive. Um, I argue in the book that that it's uh, there's plenty of naivete and other factors like greed (laughs) that enter into this. Um, but that it's a mistake to see it in that way. In retrospect, some people are inclined to say that, that it was doomed from the start. Um, I would say, and you you suggested this in your language too, that it was a, it was a gamble rather than a blunder. Uh, and it was a gamble that arguably was worth taking at the time and certainly understandable why people wanted to do it at the time and why they thought it had a good chance of succeeding. The problem, and you also suggested this, Uh, is not so much that initial gamble, but the fact that I think we and our allies doubled down on that initial bet again and again, and deepened engagements, and really left ourselves open, and didn't respond, and didn't pay enough attention to what was happening inside China, Uh, and that we should have been doing that, and we should have been modulating our engagement with China much earlier on. The reason why we're now kind of scrambling uh, on in all dimensions of our policy in responding to China is that we didn't respond in a more modulated way for a long time until we finally had kind of irrefutable evidence that the older strategy wasn't working. So not naive, a gamble, a gamble worth taking. The problem comes as the evidence accumulates that the initial bet is not paying off. And we can talk about, you know what was that was there a moment when that became clear? Why didn't we do it sooner? But that's to me. That's the essence of the problem. I
1: mean, I, I, thanks, Aaron. I, I was quite struck in in the book. Um, you know, you you seem to circle back to Tiananmen a number of times as as one of those what I might call a signpost of of you know, is this the true nature of the regime? Is this something that's problematic? Um, you've mentioned also the the. the you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union um, when the Berlin Wall came down and, and, and subsequent uh, breakup of, of the Soviet Union and, and obviously the collapse of the communist satellite states that took away the strategic rationale. Um, but we are still in a historical period where, you know, this is when the liberal democratic West seems to be rising and, and uncontested. And so, um, you know, I'm curious if we can maybe rewind a little bit and look in more detail at the 1990s. So we begin that decade with, on the one hand, bad news with Tiananmen and sort of very, very stark signs that that um, the authorities in Beijing weren't willing to brook any kind of opposition or opening and, then, and willing to, to to crush that quite ruthlessly. Yet within a context where the West still seemed to be emerging as a as a dominant player and then sort of the values that underpinned us, uh, were certainly very attractive worldwide. We also saw a demonstration of, of, you know, strong Western military prowess in the, um, in the beginning of, of that decade as well with the, with the, the Gulf war and, the the, the action against, um, against Iraq. So as we go through the 1990s, were there other points during that period where, um, you know, as we look back with the benefit of hindsight, we might say these were some of the signs that we we missed or that we weren't paying sufficient attention to during that that decade.
0: Certainly, um, all of the things that that you mentioned about the atmosphere, intellectual and political, at uh, the beginning of the 1990s, the beginning of the post-Cold War era as we now see it, uh, were important. And there was a Tremendous amount of optimism. um, This idea of the triumph of liberal democracy, the notion of the end of history, that liberal democracy has now proven its superiority to every other form of social and political uh, organization. And it's only a matter of time before everybody adopts these forms because there really isn't anything else that that works. Um, These were widely held ideas. And there were other things uh, that that underpin them, you know, the belief in Um, the role of technology in promoting globalization. So this is the beginning of the internet age uh, and people see this as kind of unstoppable force, you know, the world is flat, all all of that stuff. Um, So there's there's an atmosphere of triumphalism and optimism. Um, You mentioned Tiananmen and it does seem to me to be an extremely important event uh, for a variety of reasons. One is, as far as what was going on inside China, my reading of it is that if there was any chance of China moving towards some kind of real multi-party democracy, it died at Tiananmen, that the people who had even flirted with that idea in the party and even the intellectuals around some of the people in the party uh, who had expressed at least a willingness to think about it were purged and, and jailed or driven out of the country. And I think there was a determination on the part of Deng Xiaoping and his successors never to allow something like this to happen again. And there's an irony here because, of course, at the time, filled with all of this optimism, and of course, not all the things, the good things that happened in June 89, fall of the wall and so on. But even so, people looked and said, the students are carrying a foam rubber Uh, a statue that looks like the Statue of Liberty, and they're talking about democracy, and uh, President George H.W. Bush said something like, uh, you know, the forces of democracy cannot be suppressed. Um, So people kind of saw this as an indication that, in fact, things were moving in the right direction, when in fact it was exactly the opposite, as we can see in retrospect. That was the high point of any uh, enthusiasm for or possibility of, of liberal democracy. Um, So what happens after that? Um, I think there are indications of potential problems that emerge pretty quickly. But for the most part, people in the West, people in the United States, people in the U.S. government, even people in the U.S. military were not paying sufficient attention to them. Uh, So one, which was quite clear in retrospect, but didn't get the attention it deserved at the time was the reaction of the Chinese military to the first Gulf War, which to which you referred. Uh, and that was a transformational event for them. Uh, and they began to study it very carefully, and pretty soon, by the time you get to the mid-90s, were beginning to formulate their own response to what they saw as the threat that was posed by America's superior military capabilities, and in particular, its power projection capabilities. So the origins of the so-called anti-access area denial strategy that people have become so concerned about since were really in that period in the 1990s. And there were a few people in the U.S. who were kind of reading what Chinese writers were saying who picked up on this. But for the most part, it wasn't it wasn't paid adequate attention um, on the economic front. There was there were concerns about intellectual property theft going back to the 90s. But. At that time, it was copying DVDs and making fake Gucci bags or whatever. It was not uh, competition at the highest levels of technological sophistication. And I think also there was an expectation that this was a passing phase and even more when China enters the WTO in 2001, a belief that it has committed itself to adopt policies that will require it to abandon some of the things that people were objecting to in the 90s. IP theft, also currency manipulation, Um, there's a a debate about that. There's some objection uh, from some sectors of American industry uh, to competition from lower priced Chinese imports. There's concern expressed by American labor unions about having to compete with people who are being paid a fraction of what they would be paid. But those people really lost out in the debates over trade policy, and their uh, concerns were brushed aside. Although I think in retrospect, it's pretty clear that they were pointing to some real difficulties. It took longer for that to emerge. So there was evidence uh, that things weren't quite going according to plan. But there was, again, this belief that ultimately China had no choice but to go in the direction we wanted. As far as the political part, um, in spite of, I think, the what would have been the correct understanding of what Tiananmen meant uh particularly in the late 90s and the early 2000s there was a lot of enthusiasm for the in the west for things that were interpreted as indications that china was beginning to move towards some political opening so village elections um, allowing lawyers to bring cases in court to defend citizens against the state Um, the uh, presence of non-governmental organizations expanding in china uh, permitting people in the early stages of the internet to express some criticism of government policy and so on. These were interpreted in the West and it's late 90s into the early 2000s as an indication that yes, just as we said, ultimately the party will have to loosen its grip. Um, Chinese society is gonna get more complex as it grows and people become wealthier. And ultimately the party will have to cede its monopoly of power in order to make things work. Uh, and this is the evidence, but it wasn't in retrospect, it wasn't that. Uh, I think those th- things that I mentioned were, I described in the book as experiments in co-optation, things the party tried when the leadership realized that they couldn't just rely on economic growth to make people happy. They had to address concerns about healthcare and pollution and, and corruption and so on. And so they tried some of these techniques, but they pretty quickly shut them down when they became convinced that, in fact, they were encouraging opposition. And particularly after the so-called color revolutions in Eastern Europe in the early 2000s and then the Arab Spring. So things that in the West were seen as, you know, dots on this line that could only go in one direction were not we not that at all. So there was evidence. But there was a, a tendency to interpret it in light of these theories and expectations that I referred to. And that caused people to explain things away rather than looking closely at what was happening. I guess I would add just two things. One, um, I mentioned greed before. Um, it, this is not just a, you know, a contest of ideas. Uh, there was a lot of money to be made and American industry and European and others, Japanese uh, very eager to get into the Chinese market, uh, eager once the the uh, innovations of globalization begin to take hold and uh, people begin to move parts of their manufacturing process to China where they can take advantage of low-cost labor. So as engagement progresses, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. It accretes more and more supporters, at least for a while. And that tends to uh, overcome attempts to modulate policy or have an open debate over whether it's working or not. The last factor, and I say in the book that I believe this to have been quite important, but it's just impossible to assess its weight, is uh, the political warfare or information operations, uh, political influence operations that the CCP engaged in, not only in the United States, but all the advanced democracies, cultivating friends and developing means for exerting influence over the preferences and the policies of of democratic countries, all for the purpose of encouraging them to remain open, so not to modify the economic policies they were pursuing, and especially in the case of the United States, to discourage the U.S. from beginning to respond more vigorously in the security domain, than it it actually did. So these influence operations really made a difference. I argue in the book that uh, it's it's impossible to assess because you know how do you measure those things. But also um, that they were pushing on an open door. Uh, it's not as if they had to overcome this stark resistance. At least not once you get past the early 1990s. Um, <clears throat> they were encouraging people to believe what they already believed and to do things that they were already inclined to do for their own reasons. Uh, but nonetheless I think it it did matter so for all of those reasons whatever evidence there might have been that things weren't working out it was not given the attention that it deserved Thank you let me um I'm going to unpack several of those ideas
1: you just uh, you just brought out there uh, let's stay in the world of economics and trade for a moment um, so uh, you know you're describing how the the, the the commercial pressures, the pursuit of profit were really driving Western industry to initially look at China as low-cost manufacturing, obviously a massive market as it was growing, and we sort of had hopes that a middle class was emerging there. Um, But we've seen, and you've done some work on on this issue with NBR in recent years, we've seen um, at least maybe beginning with the the tail end of the Obama administration, certainly during the Trump administration, and, and I think I would see signs that it's continued through the Biden administration, at least within the U.S. policy community, but also in Europe. This a growing dis- debate about disengagement, about decoupling. You know, what does that look like? And so, I'm curious if you could um, now start to look forward a little bit, and, and in the context of what we know. And in the context of of your your broad argument that we've missed various signs along the way that we should have done, as we look forward now, where do you see this this debate about decoupling and and economic disengagement going? Um, We're obviously talking about a globalized world and we're talking about multinational companies that have for decades now built their business around a global market and global supply chains. So the pressures against change are still very real. Um, so I'm just curious for your views on, on the, the economic and trade outlook for the U.S.-China relationship.
0: I think, um, you know, first of all, the, the the character of the debate over our economic policy towards China uh, in the United States, but also in Europe and, and in Asia, uh, has changed in a pretty dramatic way, although I don't know that people always see it this way. The the discussion, the essence of the discussion for the last 20 or arguably 30 years was how do we get China to change? And at first it's we're going to engage them and there's sort of natural processes that are going to make this happen. Then they're going to be in the WTO. They're going to have commitments. We'll be able to use legal mechanisms to pressure them. Then the Trump administration comes along and says none of that stuff has worked. We're going to coerce them with these very stiff tariffs. And that didn't work either. And so I think we've arrived at a point and you see this in some of the statements, uh, for example, coming out of the Biden administration about trade policy, even though I think the administration hasn't really articulated what that's going to be. They really do start with this statement, which is we tried to change them. I mean, they don't say it quite this way. We tried to change them. They wouldn't change. Now we have to deal with this reality. And how are we going to do that? And I think this is the same discussion that's going on in Europe. Um, And the first part of the answer is we have to defend ourselves, that China has been exploiting the rules of the system. They've been exploiting our openness to their benefit and our disadvantage. And so that's led to um, interest in investment screening and tighter uh, constraints on the ability of Chinese companies to come in and buy up American or European high-tech companies and extract the technology and take it back and indigenize it, as the Chinese would say. Um, It's also led, in the U.S. case, and I think it's going to happen in other places too, uh, to a reconsideration and reapplication of some export controls, not just for kind of narrow national security reasons, but broader conception of economic security and the recognition that, uh, you know, if Western companies help Chinese companies to become the dominant players in some of these emerging industries or areas like artificial intelligence, they may be able then to dominate markets to the detriment of competitors in in the West. So a recognition that we're dealing with a different kind of animal, but we're still in the early stages of trying to figure that out. You mentioned uh, decoupling and disengagement. I think this is is the place where um, that will be in some ways most contentious and difficult. Um, and yet, I think things are starting to move. So we have become uh, deeply intertwined with China, in particular in manufacturing, and especially the reliance on China as a low-cost manufacturing platform for a whole variety of materials and components that then are integrated into other, uh, other products. Um, and. You know, there has been, I think, an awareness on the part of at least some people that there were risks involved in becoming so dependent on China, and it started with a concern about fairly narrow, you know, military risks, uh, all the magnets that we need are made in China, and turns out they're integrated into American military systems. What about integrated circuits and so on? But that has now broadened out, and part of the reason for that is the COVID pandemic, which I think has accelerated this um, the recognition, not just in the US, but elsewhere, that advanced industrial countries had, for what looked like good sort of cost effectiveness reasons, gotten into a position where they couldn't manufacture masks. They had no capacity to defend themselves against a, a pandemic, and they were totally reliant on China, which meant they were reliant on a country that was, uh, if not openly hostile, not averse to holding that threat and at least suggesting the possibility that they would deny access to people or governments that that uh, didn't like what they were doing or objected so that was a shock and i think it started a process or it accelerated the process of thinking through the wisdom of allowing ourselves to remain dependent and now the ukraine war i think has, has given another boost to this because we see a, a vivid illustration uh, of the dangers of be- allowing democratic societies to depend on authoritarian regimes for critical materials, in that case, energy, um, and what that, may, what that may mean, the leverage that it can give to a hostile power. And I think people, particularly in Europe, have started to make this parallel between what they've experienced and their desire not to go through it again and to the situation that many people see in our economic relations with Europe, uh, with China. And that started in the U.S. as well. So it's a broader consideration um, or a broader concern. The difficulty is that changing these existing patterns is going to be costly. They are the way they are because uh, companies in the West – we're responding to market signals and looking for the most efficient way to do things. But China was not playing b- by those rules or it was manipulating those conditions in order to encourage dependence on China as a source. Um, so, how do we untangle those? It's going to be expensive, the transition costs are going to be expensive. And it may be, at least for some time, uh, that the replacement, if you can create a a source of supply outside China, it may be that it's more expensive. It probably will be, at least for a time. Um, So how much is that going to cost? Across what sectors are we going to do it? And who's going to pay the price? Uh, And related to that, how can governments encourage through incentives or compel through legal requirements companies that are based on their soil to do things which in the short run don't appear to be in the interest of those companies but are arguably necessary to defend the national interest of their of their home countries um, that discussion is underway in in the u.s i think um some people uh, in the u.s government may be sort of hoping that it's going to solve itself. There was COVID and then there's Russia. And now we see, you know, some Western companies are rethinking their plans for expanding productive facilities in China. And so maybe they're, we're going to get disentangled, even if we don't really do anything. But I think the, the truth of the matter is that's not going to be sufficient. The last thing to say about uh, about supply chains and, and decoupling is China has been pursuing a policy of at least partial disengagement the title of our NBR report, maybe they paid more attention to it than people did here, uh, of trying to reduce their own dependence on imports of various kinds from the West and also on Western markets, while at the same time keeping Western companies and Western countries hooked on China as as a source. And Xi Jinping has said essentially this in, in speeches, we need to reduce our vulnerability, we need to make sure the Western countries and companies remain dependent on on us, so it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be a struggle. I don't think the end result is going to be you know total decoupling, unless there is some violent conflict like a war over Taiwan. If that happens, then all bets are off, and and these relations will be disrupted regardless of the cost. The question in my mind is whether we can uh, do what we need to do for our own security. Absent some kind of major shock, can we actually generate the the will and the political consensus and mobilize the resources necessary to encourage these changes in systems like ours, where the state, for the most part, doesn't dictate to the private sector? uh, How exactly are we going to do that without some kind of national emergency? And uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to.
1: Well, I, I'm going to push you on that a little bit because I think there's a parallel sort of questions for one of the other ideas you, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago, and that's China's use of political influence operations and sort of uh, activities to shape the, the the political or the media landscape in, in, in Western countries. And, and again, by Western, I'm referring here to, you know, The U.S., the the liberal democracies in Europe, the liberal democracies across Asia. Obviously, if we look back over the last few years, we've seen uh, countries as diverse as Australia and and New Zealand. um, You know, the U.K. has done a little bit of this. um, You know, Lithuania has gone through it this past year, um, Poland as well. Um, How are Western and and liberal democratic societies balancing this dilemma of, on the one hand, staying true to the values that, that our societies are founded on freedom of speech, freedom of expression, you know, rule of law, um, an openness that would allow this kind of of, of robust debate to take place. Um, And in some cases, countries with um, uh, important sizable populations of of Chinese heritage citizens who are active, uh, committed members of, of those societies now how are a, a, a liberal democratic societies grappling with the complex issues around countering Chinese influence operations without falling down the same sort of rabbit hole and, and opening up the same problems of of just heavy handed suppression or repression or uh, policies that will lead to some form of, of, you know ugly discrimination or worse. And we've unfortunately seen examples of that across a number of countries in the last few years as well. So I think it's a parallel question to the economic trade piece, but it's more at the sort of ideational level. So curious for your views on that.
0: This too, I think, is is an issue that is unresolved. And I have to say, in most Western societies, it hasn't yet fully been joined. You mentioned Australia. Australia is unusual uh, for a variety of reasons, not least that they had left themselves almost completely open to uh, influence operations including not having any restrictions on foreign uh, contributions to political campaigns i mean there was nothing uh, and now they have laws uh, that that prohibit that or make it more difficult um i think uh, you know i think australia is a good example of a country that was able has been able to face up to some of these concerns has uh, the government has behaved in ways and implemented policies that do uh, strengthen uh, resilience and, and strengthen uh, Australia's ability to, to resist uh, Chinese influence operations without going overboard and provoking um, anti-Chinese sentiment uh, or racism? I mean, there's people who don't like what they're doing will always accuse. Uh, governments of, of being guilty of that, and it's not that it's a it's an unreal or illegitimate concern, but it's also something that's used by the Communist Party and uh, part of its the brunt of its influence operations in some countries is precisely to preclude any effort to to limit them or restrict them. Maybe the Australians also had a um, a gift, if you can call it that. Because the the Chinese government was so brutal in trying to punish them for speaking out, particularly about the COVID pandemic. So imposing these restrictions on trade sanctions, effectively uh, on, China, on important Australian industries, um, you know, that has the effect of kind of changing the tenor of the debate in a way that puts the onus on people who want to defend the status quo. That hasn't quite happened in the United States, but I think it is starting to shift. There has been a change. And whereas previously, uh, anyone who wanted to make the case for any kind of restrictive policies in the economic domain or elsewhere would have had a very steep uphill fight. Why are you doing this? You're disrupting engagements and we're going to make things worse. Um, It is starting to shift in the other direction where uh, people who want to maintain the status quo, I think, have to justify that. That position. To answer your question more directly, I think this is something maybe more than any of these other issues where political leadership is, is essential. I know this is kind of a cliche and it's the get out of jail free card and assume inspiring and intelligent political leaders uh, and all problems will be solved. But here particularly, I think it's the case because you have to have national leaders who are capable of explaining what the problem is and articulating it in ways that identify precisely the source of the problem. And in this case, the source of the problem, in my view, is the Chinese Communist Party. It's not the people of China. It's certainly not Chinese citizens living in other countries. It's definitely not people of Chinese ethnicity or heritage who are are citizens of those countries. Those people are not the problem. The problem is the Chinese Communist Party. And to highlight that is the crucial first step to devising policies to counter what the CCP is doing, which is of course why they don't want uh, people to call attention to the character of the regime. Um, can we do that in a way that's um, intelligent and uh, not simply sort of red baiting? I, I think so. I don't think that's I don't think that's impossible. Um, if you look at public opinion in the united states and also across europe and and democratic countries in asia too in the last two years there's been a dramatic shift in attitudes towards china and people don't say they hate china but they're skeptical of china or they worry about china depends on how the polls are phrased Um, there's a lot to work with there people know that something's not right when a foreign government is threatening to withhold uh, you know masks or is uh, imposing sanctions on people because they point out that the Chinese government is holding a million of their own citizens in concentration camps. You know, people know that there's something not right about that. But what exactly is the problem and how to respond? That's where leadership comes in. But I think the, um, uh, the shifts in public opinion should enable that. Uh, but it's not going to happen without intelligent leaders. And I should say the other side of that, you can see how much damage can be done if you have irresponsible leaders who engage in the kind of rhetoric that encourages this uh, ethnic uh, um, animosity. And we've we've had a bit of that here.
1: Thanks, Aaron. We're we're getting close to time. So let me um, pose a question that. Asks you to look forward. So. What you're describing is a complex set of, of policy arguments and business arguments about um, the extent to which to, uh, to disengage economies that over decades have become very deeply intertwined in order to protect our ability to have innovation and, and you know, commercial success and a level playing field for business. Um, a similarly, an equally complex uh, set of discussions about how best to compete in this struggle for values. I mean, and that's that's both a, a defensive, you know, how do we protect our open societies from um, influence operations run by the CCP, to a broader, uh, almost philosophical discussion about, you know, is is the Western liberal democratic order still the the most optimal order for? human societies to be organized around in contrast to authoritarian regimes that that China clearly is and and others are um, across the world. Um, So it feels like, and you're describing the costs of these debates and the costs of changes that would be required in both cases are pretty significant. So on the one hand, we have a lot of work to do in our societies to to make the changes necessary to meet this challenge. Um, On the other hand, you know, I imagine myself sitting in Beijing, and I'm looking at an aging population, an economy whose growth is is you know declining pretty rapidly, and that's not just COVID-related. That's there's a whole bunch of other reasons uh, with you know the the levels of of debt within the Chinese economy, the real estate crisis, the the the, the failure to reform and sort of see the kind of liberalization that we were all hoping for. Are in some ways coming back to bite um, uh, the Chinese leadership. So there feels to me like there's a little bit of a race going on here. You know, will will we in the West be able to have these conversations and make the policy changes necessary quickly enough, and, and sort of outrun China's or the Chinese Communist Party's ability to sort of push forward with its vision of how the world should evolve? So let me sort of ask you to finish by ask, as answering the question, as we look out over the next five to 10 years, what do we need to do to get China right or to get our China policy right?
0: Well, that, that's a huge question uh, and too much to, to answer in five minutes. Um, let me Let me respond to your question in a couple of ways. One, first, I like the way you've framed this, that China has its problems and we are trying to change our relationship with them. Uh, One thing I would say is the CCP's chances of navigating the challenges that it faces and maintaining its power will be greater to the extent that they can convince us not to change the policies we're currently pursuing. They need for us to remain open to some degree, they continue to need access to technology that we develop. They continue to need access to our market. Advanced industrial democracies, I think, take something like 50 percent of China's exports. Um, So if we can't make the necessary uh, adjustments, we will increase the odds that they will be able to keep on going and maintain their grip on power. Flip that around, I think part of what we're talking about and what we should be thinking about is how not only how do we defend ourselves, but how do we do things that defeat The efforts of the CCP regime to achieve its objectives through the policies that it's currently pursuing, because I don't think there's much chance that they're going to change direction unless and until they've been convinced that they can't get where they want to go by doing the things that they're currently doing. There is a sort of positive way of of framing this, which I think I find to be helpful. And I would put it like this over the course of the Cold War, the United States and democratic countries in Europe and Asia developed a liberal international order that was not a global order, not an all-encompassing one, but a partial one. It was geographically constrained, but it contained within it countries that were, for the most part, democratic, that increasingly, as time wore on, traded with one another more and more openly, that shared values, that resolved their differences peacefully and through resort to international law and international institutions and so on. And that system was very effective, and it's really, you know, it enabled us to win the Cold War. What happened after the end of the Cold War was that we tried to expand that system to make it truly global. And in the process, to incorporate within it countries which were not yet liberal democracies themselves, China and also Russia, in the expectation that incorporating them would accelerate their transformation. And if that had happened then we'd all be rich and happy you know we would have a truly global liberal international order made up of liberal democratic states and not that we wouldn't have problems but uh, it would be a totally different situation so now instead what we've got is a world in which the um, illiberal states the authoritarian powers have penetrated into democratic societies have been allowed to do that and in order to preserve their security and to enhance their own welfare, the liberal democracies have to exclude the authoritarians, at least to some degree. They have to push back and establish some barriers, and they have to recreate a partial liberal system from which the illiberal states are not entirely excluded, but partially excluded. And Russia is already far down that path because of Russia's behavior. I don't think we shouldn't want to have to get to that position with China, but I think we have to not only the negative side of this, if you like, is restructuring our relations with China. The positive side is rebuilding and strengthening this liberal order that's made up of countries that share values and share a vision of the good society, whatever differences they may have. And I think we're moving in that direction, although I don't believe that our leaders have fully articulated it. This sort of general discussion about cooperating with democracies and there's a sort of vague and vaporous references to the liberal international order as if it was ever a you know global, all-encompassing thing. But if you look at what's actually happening, particularly in the wake of Ukraine, you have the NATO strategic concept paper referring directly to the threat ch- posed by China. You have Japanese and South Korean representatives showing up at the NATO summit meeting. You have EU leaders going to Asia and saying, you know, we'll back you just as you've backed us in facing aggression. There's beginning to be this coalescence. Uh, also, when you look at discussions of supply chains, the idea of friend shoring, you know, we're not going to pull everything back and make it in America. It wouldn't make sense. But if we can, we'd rather be buying things that are made in friendly countries, which are going to be mostly other democratic countries. And that's not just a notion that you hear in the U.S. So I think we're working our way towards this, um, but perhaps we haven't fully identified and articulated the goal or we don't have leaders who have yet done that. But in my mind, that's what we're headed back to. It's not ideal. Maybe a better a better system would be a global liberal democratic order. This is second best, but it's a whole lot better than continuing with what we're doing. Or even worse than allowing the whole thing to collapse and pulling back into isolationism. So that's my that's my solution <laughs> to to all of our problems. I leave the you know the solution of the problem to uh, as a homework assignment. Uh, it's easy <laughs> to say, uh, but it's I, it's difficult to do. But you need to have a sense of direction. You need to have a goal uh, in order to formulate a a, a meaningful strategy. Yeah.
1: Well, that that's certainly a very compelling place to finish, Aaron. And uh, again, I'm, I I will take your your positivity there about, especially about the way that um, democratic societies have responded to the crisis in Ukraine, not just within Europe but globally. I mean, that has been um, in many ways quite remarkable to see the strength uh, and and the purpose of of you know. The, democratic countries banding together to support a country that's that's under se- severe challenge of, uh, of military occupation and military invasion. So um, let's finish there. Aaron, this has been a fascinating, very insightful discussion. Thank you for your time. Um, Aaron Friedberg, the Princeton University professor and the author of Getting China Wrong has been our guest today. Um, thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Asia Insight. And we'll look forward to you joining us for future conversations on key policy issues in the Indo Pacific. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.